1859, Charles Darwin theorized in his book, The Origin of Species, that life forms have evolved over time through a process of natural selection. In 1871, in his book, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, he theorized that nature itself determined the development and progress of all living things. The implication was that any God-centered view of the world is merely wishful thinking. Darwin implies that nature, not God, controls human development. Our origin story, according to Darwin, is explained simply through the laws of nature and science. 150 years later, Darwin's theories have been accepted by most rational minds as scientific fact. But meanwhile, the Bible also speaks to this question of origin. The book of Genesis gives us a different set of answers about how we got here. But is Genesis just far-fetched, goofy, highly unlikely mythology that should be taken allegorically? Or is it a historical account of literal events? If so, are Christians rejecting science by choosing to believe it? friend, co-host, partner. Um, what other adjectives could I use to describe mm. you? Bearded, compadre, gentle, gentle giant. Mm. Gabe Rutledge. Yeah. How you doing, Gabe? I'm doing well. Doing well. I'm getting getting ready to get back in teaching mode here in the next week yeah. or so. And, uh, welcome a whole new batch of students. Yes, and those were graders. Those were fun days when I was a high school teacher. That was a interesting time of year. Do you feel like you judge your students on the basis of their first names when you see their names on your roster? Mm. Like I never had a good student named Travis. I don't know what it is about the name Travis, yeah, but anytime yeah. I'd see a kid named Travis on my roster, I'd be like, mm, not going to go well this year. What's funny is, you know, I, I, when I was in high school, I was actually 11th grade history, which is what I teach now. Um, I told my 11th grade history teacher the first day of the school year that I prefer to go by Phil with two L's <laughs> at the end. <laughs> so the joke was on. So the entire school year, I had to keep up this act where I responded to Phil. All my friends called me Phil. All my classmates called me Phil. I wrote Phil at the top of every piece of paper and turned it in. And in the last day of school, Mr. Morrison, Dale Morrison, I'll never forget him. He leans out of his office and he's got a phone in, in, in one hand. And he's, he's leaning out of his office and he says, Hey, Phil, what's your real name? They can't find you in the school system and I got to put your grades in. And so it broke the last day of school. I said, my name wow. is Gabriel Rutledge. And he's like, Gabriel, why didn't what you just tell me your name's Gabriel? <laughs> hey, so, so was, was that the origin story of uh, Phil O'Connor? The, sort of. Your yeah, alter ego yeah. at Southeastern? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I used to make prank calls at Southeastern <clears throat> using as, the name Phil. Yeah, yeah. Phil O'Connor. Yeah, but it kind of came a... full circle. I just ran into one of my my students, one of my who's about to be a twelfth grader, and uh, he he popped in my classroom as I was painting my classroom this past week, and and so we're gonna actually play a prank on a new teacher, and he's gonna do the same thing that I did when I was in eleventh <laughs> grade, and he's gonna go by Phil, but this time he's gonna be Phil Junior. 
And this kid's awesome. He's he's got this long, like twelve inch long mullet, and um, he's just oh, he's beautiful. just he's just rocking it. Yeah, he's a really cool kid. That's awesome. Well, it is Alabama where you're teaching. So that's it probably is. par for the course. So, yeah. Well, Phil, um, it is our tenth episode. Can you believe that? Mm, ten episodes deep. We are ten deep. It's crazy. Wow. It's been really cool just to see people tuning in from all over the country and then um, an international audience. We've had a couple listeners from Singapore, from Poland, from Slovakia. I don't even wow. know where that is, but hmm. yeah. Well, hello to you guys if you're listening. It's amazing that here I am in southern Alabama reaching the ears of people in Poland and Singapore. Yeah, that's super cool. And thank you guys for being gracious and giving your feedback and asking questions. And um, I've just really enjoyed, man. It's just been a really, really cool thing to do. Just started kind of from you and I hanging out and talking on the phone, being like, mm-hmm. man, it'd be really cool to like have a conversation every couple of weeks where we record it and see if anybody wants to sit in our nerdy, silly, kind of stupid sometimes conversations. And apparently some people are interested in listening in. So that's kind of cool. Well, yeah, at the very least, my, my mom and our respective wives <laughs> are definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, man, it's been uh, it's been awesome. So thank you. It's been a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for for uh, managing all this. Ten episodes. That's, yeah, it did fly by. Yeah, and it did. The, um, you know, the show has kind of evolved a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about. We started off talking about Passover, and now see the, topic what you're doing. Has, the topic yeah, has I'm, I'm kind of you evolved your into evolved, um, yes. current events. Like we talked about racial injustice, and mm-hmm. and now I feel like we're talking about evolving a little bit more. Would you say that there was a bit of a natural selection in how kind of the episodes that were the fittest they survived and the topics and the things that we talked about that were the fittest they survived and kind of made their way through and the ones that just kind of, you know, didn't, didn't make it just went extinct over time. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> am I am I stretching this metaphor maybe a little bit too much? <laughs> yeah, I think you're overplaying the segue just a little bit. Yeah, man. Segways are my job. Okay. Well, tonight, or today, whenever you're listening to this, what we're discussing is, of course, this idea of Charles Darwin and Darwinist evolution and the question of origin. And of course, as Bible-believing Christians, how we deal with this, how we think through this, what we believe, and how how we're supposed to believe this. Is there um, a monolith of beliefs that a Christian has to have when it comes to these types of things? And so this is actually going to be the first of a two-part episode. Our next episode, we're really going to get into the weeds um, of the book of Genesis and kind of talk about the biblical worldview and different viewpoints and interpretations of that. But uh, Gabe, what, what's been your experience when you talk to someone who's not a Christian, they hold to a different worldview, and you start talking about this question of origin mm-hmm. and where we came from? I mean, does it yeah. seem to you, and, and I've got a story about this, but does it seem to you like people that aren't Christians think Christians have lost their mind and are absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when it comes to this question of science and origin yeah. and things like that. I mean, have you experienced that? Can you speak to that at yeah, all? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, just recently, you know, we, we live in such a morally, rel- morally uh, relative culture that 
I've found that most people will respect what you believe in terms of faith and are the mm-hmm. origin of mankind, the origin of, of the universe, as long as you don't try to impose that on them. The minute you try to impose that on them, it seems like in our culture, um, people get very um, defensive and recoil. But yeah, just, just recently, yeah, I had, had a, a great long conversation with a couple of people who were atheist, um, Darwinian evolutionists. And uh, yeah, I, I always start when I'm, when I'm getting to a point where I feel like I can share my faith with people. Maybe they're longing for something a little bit deeper and the conversation's going a little bit deep. I always ask them, I'm like, I say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you seem like a deep thinker. There's like five questions that philosophers say haunt every human being. And I'm, I'm curious to see where you're at with those five questions. The first question is, where did we come from? And, or, or like, how did we get here is the way you can phrase it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the things, you know, so right away they come up with their different theories. And the second question is, okay, um, based on what you just told me, uh, why are we here? Right. And then number three is, okay, based on what you just told me and your worldview, who gets to define what is right and wrong? What is right and wrong? Who gets to define it? And then, and then I always ask, um, what comes next or what, what happens when we die? And usually, mm-hmm. as I go through these questions, you can see their wheels are kind of turning, and I, I, I then I come back and I give them my answers to those questions, right. and I show them from a biblical worldview why you know my life has meaning, their life has meaning, the lives of every human being has meaning, and why creation has meaning, and what comes after death, and so it's a really good opportunity for me to not only share the gospel, but also to kind of erode and show the inconsistencies within their worldview. Because many sure. people, like this couple I was talking to, they're very passionate about justice, about compassion, about rescuing animals, about saving the environment. And those are all wonderful and good things. But they did not have a worldview that was able to sustain those things. And right. So I almost did. like it was incompatible with those strongly held beliefs. Yeah. Of the dignity of creation and things like that. Yeah. And it's been interesting to me. Like I find so often that when I talk with someone that does not have a Christian worldview and specifically someone who's highly educated or somebody that probably Mm -hmm. would be considered more of an intellectual, it seems like, man, like when we bring up the issue of origin Mm -hmm. and the issue of science and the Bible, you know, it, it almost seems like the, the, the door just seems to slam shut of just like, man, you can't expect me to believe that there's somehow this bearded figure in the sky that snapped his fingers and look, deus ex machina, everything that we see <laughs> came from this, you know, it just, yeah. you know, that's so, that's so easy and that's so silly for somebody to believe that. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny though, because when, you know, you, you do what it is that you just talked about where you start asking them, well, how did the universe come into existence or how did you know, human life come about, some of the answers they give are just as far-fetched, if not more, when you actually start thinking about it. Yeah, so they're okay with believing that all the matter in the universe was so tightly compact. I read this in one of the science textbooks I used to teach from, actually, that all the matter in the universe was so densely compacted that it could fit on top of a ballpoint pen. And it became so supercharged and dense (sighs) that it had to explode out into the universe and create what we now see is all these different planets and things. But so that's not too far fetched to believe that. 
Sure. And so then there's all kinds of other questions like where did all that matter come from? Where did the energy come from that allowed it to explode? Um, so there's all kinds of other questions that arouse right. from that. But yeah, it's yeah. It, what what really kind of triggered this conversation for me and got got me thinking about this and passionate about this is I, I was at a Goodwill bookstore down in South Florida um, uh, last month, and I bought this book on dinosaurs and ancient animals for my boys to look at. And it's like a real thick book, a few hundred pages long. Wait, did you buy that for you or was it for your boys? Because <laughs> yeah. that sounds like a book that you would buy for yourself. And I did. I, I have to yeah. admit, I did glance through it. But okay, continue. me Sorry. glancing through it actually was, was very beneficial because at the end of it, probably the last 15 pages is a series of um, photos and paintings and artist rendition of the progression of the evolutionary process of human human beings. So it starts oh. off with like these apes that are swinging in trees and they have tails and stuff. And then they kind of come down out of these trees and they, they land on the ground. And they're, then they kind of straighten up and you flip the page and then maybe one has a walking stick. Then you flip the page again and, they're, and it looks like they're a little bit more straight and they have less hair, but they're very still, they're still very dark skinned and they're making mm-hmm. simple tools. And then you flip the page again, their skin is lighter. They have less hair and they're like cooking something over a fire. You turn the page again and it's a straight up white family, fully clothed, sitting around this little area in a cave and they're all sharing a meal together. And then you flip the page again and it's like, like this it's a dad wearing Crocs at a grill. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it was going through and you can clearly see the racial undertones of this, of this book and of these paintings of how there is like this, you know, that we evolved from apes essentially. And I was like, wow, this is bizarre. And so what that led me to do is go ahead and research, um, Darwin's writings. So Darwin wrote three major books. Um, and one that we all know is the origin of species, but that's just like, that's only half the title. And the other half of the title you won't hear about in your high school biology class. The other half of the title is the origin of species and the preservation of favored races. And the struggle for life. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he wrote a book after that called the descent of man. And, um, in which he describes any race other than the European race as something like subhuman and closer and right. closer in relation to chimpanzees and orangutans. Yeah. And that's, what's so interesting is you really dive into his writings that are probably more influential on 20th century civilization than almost any other, mm-hmm. um, writer, philosopher, scientist, whatever. And, what we hear about from most secular humanists and and people that say, well, my you know, my worldview is just scientific. What we hear about is only the tip of the iceberg on what Darwin actually wrote about. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> if you really start delving into it, what you find out is that he actually stood for British imperialism, mm-hmm. and he stood for the advancement of the white race by seeing specifically Australian Aborigines. I think it's what I read. Uh, mm-hmm. He saw them as subhuman and actually tried to use his teaching to justify the genocide of indigenous Australians in 1876. So uh, pretty interesting why we don't hear about that and how we hear about, <laughs> da- you know, religion is so dangerous, but then we don't really focus on uh, the dark side of that at all. But uh, a question I think I have is why do you think that we just as Western civilization have taken these theories of Charles Darwin and, and we'll kind of delve into what that is 
if somebody's never really researched those theories, but why do you think we've just accepted them at this point as scientific fact? And if you question them, you even try to like understand them or ask questions about them, like, wait a second, that doesn't mm-hmm. quite add up. Why are people shunned and kind of blacklisted from any sort of academic or intellectual community if you just kind of question these theories that are really only 150 years old? Yeah, yeah, they're only 150 years old, and they've only been taught in public schools in America um, since, I mean, uh, really since the 1920s, 1925 was the Scopes trial, um, and really not widespread until the 19, late 70s and 80s. But yeah, um, I think I think we reject uh, the notion of truth, reject the, the notion of there being a creator, because that automatically implies that we're subject to him, and you know he's he's smarter than us he knows better than us and um and we have to conform our lives around his will if if we if we accept that as true if there is a creator then we need to we need to figure out if he's ever if he's ever communicated to his creation and if so does he have any expectations for us as creation yeah that's a scary thought to people who are who are drifting farther away from in their rebellion drifting farther away from their creator yeah well i mean it seems like it it seems to me like so many people that attach themselves to the theory of evolution as a claim that it disproves religion, it disproves spirituality, it disproves God. They're actually taking this theory way outside of its own limits because it seems like this theory, (laughs) which that is exactly what it is. It's a theory. And we'll talk about that. It's been kind of hijacked as this sort of, um, anti-religious mascot by people that kind of have an ax to grind against this concept of God. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, if, if God exists, then he probably has some expectations about how we as humans live our lives. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if I don't want anybody to tell me how to live my life, then it, <coughs> excuse me, it becomes very easy for me to just say, well, he doesn't exist. So I don't have to worry about what some creator God thinks about how I live my life because I'm just going to believe that he doesn't exist. And I'm going to use this theory as a way of saying, this is my proof, even though it doesn't ever do that, really. And we'll kind of take a look at some of that stuff tonight. Yeah, and I like Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of a man <coughs> is deceitful above all things and beyond a cure. Who can understand it? And I think we as humans, um, apart from the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, will always err on the side of rebellion and casting off the quote-unquote shackles of faith and religion and submitting ourselves to a higher power. Yeah. So as Christians, um, our relationship, I think, with science is, uh, it looks quite different, I think. Um, but I'll, I'll just go on record to say, I mean, I, I, I will go toe-to-toe with anybody that somehow claims that science contradicts the Bible. I don't think that it does. I think that mm-hmm. science actually supports the Bible. And I think that um, the reality is so often people have pitted those two things to be at odds with each other. Um, but I, I mean, I, I just... I feel like for so long, and I don't know if you've, you've been here or not, but like, I think I was brought up in a type of Christianity that almost taught me to be afraid of science or to be afraid mm-hmm. of asking the hard questions. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was oh, almost yeah. like, Hey, like 
you know, you're, you're going to find all these public school teachers and they're going to tell you these horrible, awful things about we came from monkeys. We didn't come from monkeys. Don't listen to them. And it was just kind of like, okay, but help me understand. Like, why did we not mm-hmm. like, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Let's have dialogue about some of that stuff. It was almost like I, I feel like for so long I was taught to be afraid of science and don't go too far into science because almost a fear mm-hmm. that, you know, it would begin to contradict my faith and I would fall away from a belief in God. I don't know if, yeah. if you felt those influences or not, but yeah, yeah. I think there's a difference between isolating your children or maybe even your congregants versus inoculating them, showing them, in other words, showing them enough mistruth that it does the opposite. It strengthens their immune systems, their faith's immune systems. It strengthens right. their walk because they can see, okay, I, I've looked at this. I've explored this. The truth has defended itself. And I always say that. I say, <clears throat> if you feel the need and the urge to debate something, it means that you're looking for validation. Right. Because the truth will always defend itself. If you're truly, well, honestly, and, and, and really seeking after truth, it will defend itself. You'll find it. It'll, it'll find you. It'll reveal itself to you. Right. As long as you well, want it to. Man, I had a really interesting encounter with, so I don't know if I've told you this or not, but there's a lot of, uh, out here where I pastor in a more rural area in Tennessee, I have encountered quite a bit of people that came from a Amish background or a Mennonite background. Hmm. And so kind of the philosophy of the Mennonite community and the Amish community is isolate yourself from society because it's going to hell in a handbasket. We're going to kind of build our own society and be completely mm-hmm. separate. And and so, you know, a lot of those folks that have come out of that have landed in my church just because, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a more rural area where there's a lot of people from those areas. And I had a conversation with a young man who came up to me at a wedding that I officiated and he came up to me and he goes, pastor, I just have this question. There's this guy I met that doesn't believe that God created the world. And he was like, so baffled by that. And I just didn't listen to him and I'm just nodding along. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And I was like, okay, well tell me a little bit more. He goes, well, See, he was telling me that that there's this thing where we evolved from monkeys, and like he's he's trying to he's trying to articulate, trying to articulate and verbalize yeah. the theory of evolution and and the origin of species, but he literally never heard it. And he's a young man of probably like 21, 22 years old. Wow, wow! And it's like rocking his faith to the core. Because no one had ever told him, hey, there's multiple wor- world views about this question of origin, but let's research it. Let's dig into it. Let's let's examine it. And like you said, the truth will always win out if mm-hmm. we're truly searching for the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I sat there and listened to this young man, and man, my heart broke for him because I'm like, dude, if that, that's like the first time you've heard that at like 21, 22 years old, like... Man, you're going to have a, t- a rough go yeah. at it when you start actually getting out there and finding out some of the other crazy stuff that people believe outside of your little bubble. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the wonderful things I love about teaching at a Christian school where I'm at and teaching the course that they've allowed me to teach is a worldviews course. So I'm taking 12th graders and teaching them about the six major worldviews of the West. And one of oh, them cool. is secularism. 
And we talk, we talk a lot about Darwinian evolution and stuff. So I'm taking kids in Southern Alabama and exposing them to things like Marxism, Darwinism, um, you know, new age spirituality, Islam, and we're going through and we're kind of unpackaging a lot of that stuff and talking, comparing it to the Bible and, and, you know, history and everything else. So, um, I really enjoy doing that. And I think more Christian schools, if given the opportunity should do that more churches, more Sunday schools should do that, you know, 100% because I think that what so often happens is church becomes a place where instead of us as pastors, we teach people to rightly divide the word of truth and we teach people what it means to be ready to give an answer for the hope that Mm-hmm. is in you like the scripture tells us instead we tell people when they come in the church man just feel it feel it feel it feel it and worship services become just basically a pep rally for jesus where we mm-hmm. sing some songs and a pastor gets up and kind of gives a ted talk for jesus and he <laughs> ends with this you know this this really emotive charge to the people of god and they leave kind of filled up with man i just felt that but then they go out into a world that a lot of folks don't really care as much about that as much mm-hmm. as they do with what they believe are rational facts. But if we've not actually taught people the word of God and we've not taught people the nature of truth, they're not going to be prepared for that. Yeah. Because if you bring that to someone that's from a Darwinist worldview and you're like, Hey man, you just need to feel it. They're going to be like, well, that's great. But Richard Dawkins wrote that uh, DNA does not care about your feelings and that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what is it, blind, pitiless indifference? Some of us are going to get lucky. Some of us aren't. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing we don't have more school shootings. I've said that in the past. I think, I know, man. I think when we've reduced people down to just highly evolved forms of pond scum and clumps of bacteria and all of our emotions. All of our feelings are just chemicals that are fizzing off in our brains. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's it completely devalue human life, the uniqueness of it, and the yeah. fact that it's made in God's image. I think I'm just amazed that we, we don't have more crime and we don't have more mass murders. And I think it's the grace of God giving us time to, to, to repent, to, to turn back to him. Um, yeah. But yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what... Charles Darwin's theories were centered around, and then we'll talk about maybe some issues uh, with them just from a a rational standpoint. And if somebody's listening to this and you are an atheist or you are someone that is trying to figure this stuff out, or maybe you've been taught that that's the only way to view this question of origin is through that viewpoint, you know, hopefully we can talk about some things that'll make you think, but um, So simply put, in 1859, when Charles Darwin wrote the book, The Origin of Species, and the full title, like Gabe said earlier, is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Hmm. Tell us what you really think, Charlie. (laughs) Chuck. You think his friends called him Chuck? Chuckles? Maybe Chucky. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chuckles Darwin. Uh, so he, he theorized, again, this is a theory, that life forms have evolved over time through the process of natural selection. He did not, um, he did not offer an explanation for how life began in the first place. The theory of evolution essentially describes how 
um, life forms begin to evolve over time to where we have human life and intelligent life. And there were all these different observations that he made about how different things um, seem to have mutations and things like that. And so he came up with this theory that over time, um, organisms and um, living things begin to adapt and change in their environment to where the ones that were the strongest survived and the ones that were not the strongest, they went extinct. Yeah. So that was his original theory. Yeah. And then in 1871, he kind of developed a little bit more in his book, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And in that book, he theorized that nature itself determined the development and progress of all living things. So it's almost like if you start really dissecting the philosophy behind his scientific theories, it is if nature itself is a god, <laughs> that mm-hmm. nature itself is a force that... Um, almost, I don't want to say the word creates because he kind of vehemently, he doubled down in 1871, but really nature is kind of that force that brings about life. And so the implication was that any God centered view was wishful thinking. And it was nature that determined human development. It wasn't God. And really our origin story as uh, humans and really just the, the world as it is now can be explained through the laws of nature and science. Mm-hmm. And so if you read about kind of the impact of that theory, there were people who, you know, first time they read it, they literally laughed out loud so hard that their sides hurt. Um, I think the Atlantic reviewed the origin of species and said it was the funniest and most farcical thing they've ever read. They didn't think he was serious because it seemed so far-fetched. He was he was labeled as a blasphemer and a heretic by many people. And then it started gaining traction. And people began accepting it. People began to latch on to it. And people who were secular humanists begin to say, wait a second, you're on to something. This this can explain how we can progress as a society. And many people actually point to the rise of um Empires like Nazi Germany and what we saw in Italy under Mussolini and what you saw even in World War I. And a lot of people can point to the influence of Darwinistic thought and say Charles Darwin actually had quite a bit of influence on these different empires and how they believe that the strong survive and the weak get conquered yeah. and the weak die off. Yeah, and I think it's um, what kind of led the way for another school of thought called social Darwinism, um, which is not really one of uh, Darwin, like Charles Darwin's original intent, but um, basically it says the same thing, but applies it to social aspects. So um, different people groups or different societies or forms of government are going to win out over lesser forms. And eventually we're going to progress into this perfect utopian society. And um, it's, kind of, it's kind of the ugly stepchild of um, biological Darwinian evolution, hmm. if you will. So would you say that social Darwinism, I mean, if you look at the history of just communism in the 20th century as well, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, if you look at what Soviet, the Soviet Union did, I mean, there was mm-hmm. essentially a campaign to stomp out uh, lesser ethnicities. 
So yeah. the the against you know Jewish those of Jewish ethnicity and Jewish nationality, there was a you know incredible anti-Semitism. Um, but then you even look at stuff that was happening in China. You look at stuff that was happening in Cambodia under Pol Pot's regime, the killing fields. Um, and in behind, South Africa, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. South and, Africa and, and the Boer Wars um, and the killing sure. of the Zulus. But uh, behind that, just like you said, there's this thought of what we're doing is we're advancing the progress of a superior race yeah, because of oh, yeah. survival of the fittest. And it's always really convenient when you deem yourself the superior race, right? Right. It's really convenient of, of Charles Darwin to say that he's, he's of the higher evolved race. Right. So, yeah. So obviously, uh, one could follow the influence of Darwinism throughout the 20th century and see what it's done. But let's go back to the theory. So the theory is essentially that um, life evolves from a single cell organism millions and millions and millions of years ago to us now as humans. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? And so when you really start delving into his theory, what you find is there are some unanswered questions and some serious flaws and problems with his theory. And one of the first is this contradiction and this flaw between um, exactly how that worked. He, he kind of proposed a theory called gradualism. And gradualism basically was trying to explain how naturalistic evolution occurs. And so gradualism basically said that organisms experience this relatively steady rate of mutations um, and there's kind of this smooth transition from early forms to later ones and so he kind of you know there's a, a fish and then all of a sudden the fish is growing legs and all of a sudden that fish that grows legs you see little wings and all of a sudden the wings you know you've probably seen this in charts in school and things yeah. like that right yeah there's only one problem though and there's it's that there's hardly any evidence in the fossil record for anything like that existing and so it seems to be absolutely, completely contradicted by fossil records. Because organisms, contrary to what Charles Darwin originally wrote, they appear suddenly and they demonstrate little change over long periods of time. And so what he originally wrote was actually disproved. So then new evolutionist scientists came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium. And that is that species appear suddenly, they live for a certain period of time, mostly unchanged, and then they become extinct. So basically, punctuated equilibrium says that there was some sort of a cataclysmic environmental, environmental thing that happened, like a giant meteor or a flood or whatever, and then all these new species would pop up that suddenly had uh, beneficial mutations all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's, again, problems with that because mutations most of the time in normal genetic science are abnormalities that cripple an organism. They're not beneficial mutations. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, would, I, think, I think majority, if not all, mutations are always negative for, the, for an organization or a population. Right. And so a lot of science has basically said that you know, any observation in real time of these things again and again and again, it's just proven. 
Like that's not how it works. And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, we just not had enough time. I mean, we're, you know, this, we're talking billions and billions and billions of years, but still the laws of science state that things do not go from being, oh, let's take for instance, my yard. I cut my grass last week. Okay. So my grass is now grown up. You and I are both getting older. Our bodies are giving out as, as time goes on. We don't get better. We get worse. Things fall apart. They, you don't mutate, and somehow as you're mutating, it's beneficial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like how can, how can Stacy and I make a conscious decision? We're, okay, we're going to have a child, and, and we want that child. Uh, we really think that sprouting wings and being able to fly is like a really beneficial thing. I think, right. you know, let's, let's think really hard, and then, you know, let's have this child, and let's just, through, through our efforts and our desires, you know, we, there will be like little buds of wings. And then hopefully that our great, great, great grandkids will have full blown wings. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like the next generation doesn't it, know. Yeah. But now even there, if there it is, did. there is macro evolution. So if uh, I give mi- birth to a kid with, yeah, if I give birth to a kid with wings yeah. tomorrow and that kid is able to fly and out, you know, outrun dinosaurs or whatever, and he sur- he survives, and he's able to continue, you know, a population. That's that's macro evolution, but there isn't a no, jump between species that's happening there. Yeah, I think it's I think you you meant to say it's micro evolution. So yeah, micro evolution. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, you're yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, micro evolution is small, and we'll talk about that. So yes, thank you. But that's the first. So that the major problem is this whole. There's no adequate explanation of how this would work, right? So uh, uh, first. Darwin suggested gradualism, but the fossil record contradicted that. And now science scientists are saying um, punctuated equilibrium. But again, just the laws of science are contradicting that because, I mean, it's just so improbable and there's not a lot of proof for how that will work. I mean, that's just basically mm-hmm. a, a wild, hairy guess of how that would work. So it's kind of the, the big problem, right? And then the second flaw is... You were talking about microevolution versus macroevolution. So mm-hmm. it is observable that evolution exists on a micro level. Mm-hmm. Um, so adaptation is something that happens within life forms. So just for instance, like um, dog breeding, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got, we've, I mean, we just turned into like these sick genetic scientists. We're, <laughs> we're doing exactly what Jurassic Park told us not to do. So like labradoodles, like why? Why are we doing that to these poor freaks of nature? Yes. Uh, and like, I just think the funniest is like when people breed corgis with anything because corgis are such small little stumpy dogs. And so they'll like crossbreed them with all these other dogs. And so what that is when you breed dogs is essentially that's micro evolution because yes, it can result in drastic changes, but those changes are within the same species. Mm-hmm. So, and we can even say that microevolution exists in humans because we are taller today than we were 150 years ago. Yeah. Um, people can point to our appendix and say, man, at one time we might have had usage for our appendix, but right now we really don't have use for our appendix. Uh, people are talking about how texting and typing and things like that, like we're adapting through generations, but all of those adaptations are happening within our own species. 
what we have observed is that adaptation happens within species, and that's an incredible, amazing thing. But for Darwin's theory to hold any water, it requires... (laughs) large-scale changes from species to species. In other words, it turns a fish into a chihuahua, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And nowhere in the fossil record, nowhere in the scientific method, nowhere anywhere has that ever been observed. And again, if gradualism was, you know, that's original theory that Darwin proposed, if that could be proven from a fossil record, maybe we could see that, right? The the fish turns into the bird. Mm-hmm. Literally, completely disproven by the fossil record. Doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And, and why aren't some of these more ancient species of animals, I mean, they decided it was best to evolve, or natural selection decided it was best for them to evolve and allow the less um, desirable species to die out. But why do we still have these species? Why have they not died out? And then exactly, it's like why why aren't there these mixture of the two? But science is always based on observable facts, observable data, repeatable observable data, and and so Darwin's theory of evolution is not observable. It's not so therefore it's not exactly. science. It's a exactly. theory, and to teach it as such is a religious standpoint. You're teaching religion that's funded and sponsored by taxpayers. Right. Well, and, you know, it's essentially like us rolling up on a crime scene after it's already happened and us observing the things that are happening at this crime scene. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's essentially what the study of origin is, right? I mean, we're looking at evidence and we're coming up with conclusions and theories for how this happened as detectives. The scientific method is not that. You're in a laboratory and you have a control study and then you have this method and you start with a hypothesis and then you test it. Did I say that right? Hypothesis? I'm saying it like Mike Tyson again. <laughs> I've, got, I've got Mike Tyson syndrome. Hey, by the way, quick segue. You know he has a fight coming up? No, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, dude. Roy Jones Jr. and Mike Tyson. I think it's September 14th. I'm not being paid by HBO to plug that fight. I will, but I will be interested in watching these two old dudes I, get out. Oh, dude, yeah, I'm, all my money's on Tyson. That dude, I would love to see him Wasn't get Wasn't he out, the ear biter? Was he the ear biter? Was that Holyfield? Yeah, Holyfield? he was the ear biter. But listen, 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 listen. Don't, don't go talking about Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, in his prime, in the 1980s, that dude was unstoppable. Iron Mike, man, he knocked more fools out than any other heavyweight boxer ever. We could do a whole episode of Mike Tyson, the rise and fall of Mike Tyson. Anyway, what were we talking about before I said, oh, so the scientific method is you start with a hypothesis. Did I say that right this time? Yes, I think you got it. Okay. And then you conduct a number of experiments to prove if your hypothesis is true or false. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with evolution. Mm-mm. And actually, when people have tried to recreate things like punctuated equilibrium, all of the conclusions have come up with, we, well, we can't replicate that in a lab. We can't observe macroevolution happening, and yet there's an insistence that this is how it had to have happened because the alternative, God created things, that can't be true. Yeah, and I think... Um it all just goes back to the reveals the desperation of man to to throw off the idea of there being a creator and authority figure in their life 
Um, it's just so sad the the straws that people are willing to grasp at to yeah. to achieve that goal. You know. Yeah, and and therein is the third problem with Darwin's theory, and it, it is that so often there is a flawed application of his theory. In that, it's not necessarily a flaw in Darwin's theory, but it's an error in the way that the theory has been applied for non-scientific purposes. So Darwin's intent on writing the theory seems to be uh, how life form moved from one form to the other and trying to really answer the question of how did we get here. But the reality is people have transformed this theory from a biological explanation into a metaphysical philosophy Hmm. to attempt to explain away the existence of a creator. And when people claim that the theory of evolution disproves God, they're really just taking this theory outside of its own limits. So Hmm. fairly or not, really this, this theory has been hijacked as, as kind of this, um, this rally cry for people that, that don't want there to be such a thing as a creator God. And honestly, if it is true, let's just for, for fun, right? Say that it all is true. How does that somehow disprove the existence of God? Right. I mean, like, does it disprove the existence of God? I mean, because I'm not saying this is how it works, but could it be that there is a God that designed the laws of nature to function in such a way? I don't personally believe that, but what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't necessarily disprove the existence of God. Like so many people claim for it to. Yeah. And there's, there's even, uh, what we call theistic evolutionists. And I I had a college professor. We'll get into that next week. Yeah. I had a college biology professor who was a theistic evolutionary. uh, Wait, wait, wait. It's Southeastern. Yes. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. I think, I think Hazel Baker, was that, was that her name? Um, no, not Dr. Hazel Baker. I think, I think so. Yeah. If I remember correctly. And, and really, you know, it was, yeah. So, so Surprise, it was kind of good it? in a way. Cause I got, I got exposed to that idea that there is people who believe in a creator that a creator just kind of started the process along and everything kind of evolved. And, and so that, that's hmm. how, how that holds water biblically and how you can actually hold water with that biblically. I have no idea because the Bible yeah. just, the idea of humans being made in the image of a creator, like we talked about a couple of weeks back, the selum, you know, the little, the little versions of, um, because in an evolutionary theory, human beings are not the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. In other no, words, there's things not. that are coming after us. And we are, we are evolving. And that's what, that's what Charles Darwin was getting at was like, we have a duty to progress humanity along. We have a duty to push this process, to hasten this process of evolutionary, the evolutionary process. And I mean, that's what Adolf Hitler would have said as well. You know, we need to purge Germany of the things that are polluting the gene pool, things, the non-Aryan people in our midst, like gypsies and, and blacks and Jews and we need to purge them from our pure, most highly evolved people group. Um, so you get in some, I mean, when this is, and here's the thing, when, char, when, when Darwinian thinking takes root in the minds of diabolic world leaders, it creates the justification they need to carry out the uh, awful and most unjust atrocities humanity has ever seen and the holocaust is one of them yeah absolutely man 
Absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the biggest problems with Darwinism is kind of this, this dark side of Darwinism that so often gets swept under the rug. Um, the narrative that exists in secular Western civilization is that the great enemy to humanity is religion. And the, and the great savior of humanity is science and rational thought. But when yeah. we say that, what we're essentially doing is we're putting the blinders over our eyes and ignoring the period of 1900 till the fall of the Soviet Union and even further than that. And what Darwinist evolution led to, the atrocities it led to. <laughs> yeah. Like with everything we've mentioned, not just with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, not just with the Soviet Union and the Gulag, not just with the killing fields of Pol Pot, but also we could even talk about the abortion uh, justification and, and Margaret yeah. Sanger and, and so much of what she believed about um, eugenics and things like that and how all of these things, the, the, the philosophy and the worldview that we have to thank for literally the blood of millions of millions of millions of people mm-hmm. is Charles Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret, I mean, getting on Margaret Singer, she bought his theory hook, line and sinker. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you look at the product of her, you know, of her, of her thinking, the product of her effort. So like I said, here's another example of someone who is very um, influential, has a lot of money and wealth like Margaret Singer and then adopts Darwin's theories and look at the death and the carnage that that can create. Absolutely. And lo and behold, where are all her, her brainchild clinics set up? Of course, in, in the places where um, the people who they would say are less evolved live. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so yeah. crazy when you follow it yeah. back like and, that. And, and you start tracing it back to its source. Really, white supremacy is embedded in so much of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is yeah. so interesting to me now because in, you know, 21st century academia, they pride themselves of being exceptionally diverse and exceptionally, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think the word is woke, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and the great sin of, of wokeness is racism. That's the worst mortal sin one could ever commit is being a woke. But yet their rally cry is we're social Marxist. We are mm-hmm. progressing the world through the theories of, you know, of Darwin and rational thought, but really what's so absolutely absurd about the whole thing is so much of what Darwin wrote was embedded in and motivated by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, the the hypocrisy of this is that one side of your mouth, you can say racial injustice is bad, slavery, bad, white supremacy, bad. And I agree with all of that. But on the other side of your mouth, you can say, Religion, bad. Being made and being told that you're made in the image of the creator, bad. You know, right. um, that, that abolitionist crusaders like William Wilberforce, who fought tooth and nail and spent every dime that ever came through his pocket to abolish slavery, bad. So the, the hypocrisy there and the double standard, let's tear down all these statues of these people, fine, whatever. But why are there still statues of Charles Darwin standing on the globe when he believed that the aborigines of Australia are more closely related to chimpanzees than human beings? And he wrote that yeah. in his writings, amongst other horrific things. 
Yeah. Well, why are why are we not doing something about that? And sure. that's well, that's well, the hypocrisy of this whole thing. And I'm, I'm, I love calling out, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, let me read a quote from an article. You actually sent me this article. This article is called The Dark Side of Darwinism by Austin Anderson. And he wrote this. He said, white supremacy is clearly embedded in the descent of man. That was Darwin's second book he wrote in 1871. Regardless of Darwin's brilliance or the accuracy of the rest of his theory, Darwin makes a disturbing link between his belief in white supremacy and his theory of natural selection. He justifies violent imperialism. From the remotest times, successful tribes have supplanted other tribes. At the present day, civilized nations are everywhere supplanting barbarous nations. Darwin's theory applies survival of the fittest to human races, suggesting that extermination of non-white races is a natural consequences of white Europeans becoming a superior and more successful race. Further, Darwin justifies violently overtaking other cultures because it has happened regularly throughout natural history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're not made in the image of the creator, if you're just a highly evolved form of pond scum, like I said, you're, you're just bags of protoplasm, then, then you don't have a worldview that sustains being kind and merciful and compassionate and equitable no. to other people of other races. Yeah. I mean, if there's no difference between us and any other species. Right. So when a, when a lion forcibly copulates with a female lion, that's called mating it's not called rape mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when yeah. a lion eats a gazelle an innocent gazelle it's not called murder it's called lunch the circle of life <laughs> yeah, but pajama penguins on the bottom hey 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 let's talk about this what is what are they saying in the circle of life in the beginning when they're like pink pajama ping are they saying here's what i think they're saying pink pajamas pink pajama penguins on the bottom I don't know. Pink pajama, penguins yeah. on the bottom. Can we get away Pink with pajama. playing that song? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I think Disney would come after us. I've always wondered that. And you know what's funny? I expected the first time I went to Africa that that's how like every morning started. You know, the sun came yeah. up and yeah. and that's not how it was. People just. <laughs> I'm listening <laughs> to it in my headphones. <laughs> yeah, people just woke up and. It was just like normal. Just, yeah, no. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I felt ripped so, off. I was like, w I was promised this when I came to Africa and there's, there was no Toto either. You know, uh, I, I missed the rains down in Africa. I didn't see any rain the first time I was there, but. I'm so sorry. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I just, that was my ax to grind, but it is the circle of life in the sense of the animal kingdom lacks morality. Right. So when people somehow claim that religion is immoral, so therefore we should turn to science because there's great morality in science, that's the most absurd, hypocritical, absolutely idiotic thing anyone could say, in my opinion. I know those are strong mm -hmm. words, but if yeah. you really stop and think about it, I, I, I think they're true. Yeah. Well, in my, in my conversation with these, these folks most recently who were Darwinian evolutionists, I basically said to them, I said, who gets, you know, we got to the second question or third question. What is morality? What is right and wrong? And who gets to define it? And they basically said governments can define what is right and wrong. If a government <laughs> entity votes well, or well passes a law, that's right and wrong. I say, okay, so, so if a government, a well-established, well-funded, popular 
backed government decides that 11 men, million men, women, and children, no crimes committed, should be put on trains and liquidated and eradicated as people. That included Jehovah's Witness, homosexuals, blacks, Jews, gypsies, 11 million. A government said that that's, that's okay, and, and they wanted to eradicate them and, and successfully eradicated around 6 million of them. I said, is that, is that right or wrong? Because you just told me that in your worldview, that as long as a government decides that that's the right thing to do, that's okay. And, and what shocked me about that is the wife said, what are you talking about? And I said, wait. Have <laughs> you read your history books? I was like, I'm talking about the Holocaust just not even 100 years ago? And she's like, okay, yeah, I, I'm a little bit familiar with that. And I was like astonished. I was like, you talking about the, the the largest mass murder in human history and you barely know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I said, okay, I gave her kind of a quick crash course on the Holocaust. And I said, according to your definition of what is right and wrong, was Adolf Hitler wrong in what he did? And no kidding, Josh, it took her about 15 seconds of staring off in the distance, thinking about that question. Wow. To look at me and say... I guess he was wrong. And I said, aha. So in your worldview, the people who could decide what is right and what is wrong are the people with the most money and or the biggest guns. And I said, that's a bleak and sad place to live in. And that's not where my morality stems from. My morality stems from the creator, the all-knowing, omnipotent, omniscient creator and his word. And it's just like, you can hear a pin drop, you know, it's like, wow, yeah. you know, it's, it's unchanging. It's not a matter of like, it's not sub subject to maniacal human beings and racism. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. And it's, yeah. And, and I think, I think when the accusation is levied against Christians who believe the Bible and believe that the book of Genesis provides us answers to the question of origin mm -hmm. of how life came to be who we are as the human race and how then which should we live and the accusation is levied against us as christians that we are absolutely the most gullible naive stupid absurd people on the face of the earth that literally have no brains mm -hmm. when one starts to when one starts to actually look at the foundations that Darwinist thought is built upon and notice and point out the cracks in the foundation and how absolutely absurd mm -hmm. it actually is and how the weight of so much false self-righteous morality has been built on a philosophy and worldview that cannot support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes the Christian worldview seem far more logical than the worldview of so many secular humanists. Well, I mean, one famous secular humanist put it, um, that religion is the opium of the masses. It was a yeah, German, was... German philosopher by the name of Karl Marx, whose yep. philosophy in the past 100 years is responsible for no less than 100 million people dying. You know what's disturbing to me? is that Karl Marx is now considered the hero of the people in places like Portland and Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And among people your age and my age that have spent a tremendous amount of time in university classrooms. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if we've been taught 
and I say we, I'm talking about just as Westerners in this day and age we live in, mm-hmm. that uh, none of those things happened. We've almost had those things scrubbed out of our history books, that there mm-hmm. are no dangerous implications to Marxism. There are no dangerous implications to Darwinism. Or, or they'll <laughs> say that those were all just lousy attempts at true Marxism. <laughs> and, and here's what I'll say, uh, is that Marx, let me put it this way, pure communism is the best form of government. However, we are all fallen, sinful human beings. And on this side of the kingdom, communism is not possible. And really, on the other side of the kingdom, it will be a monarchy, so it's not even going to be possible then. That's true. But communism, in, in terms of like its theory, is the perfect form of government. If there is no God and if there is no sin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so if we are all self-governing, right? So we're perfectly self-governing, which is not the case, right? And there is no creator king over us. And communism is the way to go. But good luck with it, buddy, because, man, I, I can't, I don't know about my own heart, let alone my neighbor's heart, let alone a guy five doors down, you know, on the other side of town. I just don't know. What about the, what about the guy three doors down? What if he went crazy? Wait, 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 wait. What if he went crazy? Would you still call him Superman? I, I met the guitarist from Three Doors Down when I was in high school. Do you know that? I actually I played that. in a battle of the bands. I was in a band. And the guitarist from Three Doors Down was one of the judges. And I remember I was the drummer for this band. And I was so <laughs> excited that he was there. And it was in this ag center where they like auction off cows and stuff. And uh, we, we played up in this ag center and he, he showed up. And I ran up to him with my snare drum, and he autographed my snare drum. <laughs> oh, so I was just like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! Did just... you still have that snare drum when we were doing no, Callahan's music?" No. Okay, because I would have totally made fun of you relentlessly if I'd known that. I would have probably. It was in tenth grade, yeah, tenth or eleventh grade. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was epic. Yeah, those were my favorite I mean, days. That is a good question, though. Like, if if he went crazy, would you still call him Superman? Oh gosh. Because that, here's the thing about that song. Let's talk about it for a second. Okay. The fact that people, he made people call him Superman before he went crazy. Maybe he was crazy to begin with first. You ever <laughs> think, thought about I that? I think there's a term for that called, <laughs> yeah, it's delusional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I just remember, that just brings me back to like 3.30 in the afternoon, sitting with a bag of Doritos and a large cup of milk on my couch with MTV on the TV and, and just conking out, man, after school. That was just, the, that was That's the That's when days. MTV played music, man. Yeah, long time ago. Days. But you know, if there was such a thing as communism, there'd be no, That's there'd true. be no MTV That's and true. music and three doors down and all that stuff. So yeah, there'd be no incentive to make good music. No, absolutely not. I think Nickelback would probably be force fed down our throats if the Marxists win. Hmm. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah. Speaking of which, speaking of Marxist communists, I see that you're not wearing a mask tonight, Gabe. Is that because you're taking a stand for true freedom and liberty like an American patriot? Because you all know what happens when you put a face covering over your face. I, I do have a sickle, to sickle and hammer just start popping out of your forehead because that's the, <laughs> that's the most Marxist symbol on planet Earth is wearing a mask. These are actual, I, I, these are actual emails that look, I've gotten over the past six we, weeks, by we, the way. We so. could have a whole episode on, on our biblical approach to mask because do you, here, here's do you know who's not going to be on that episode me because i'm tired of talking about it but go ahead uh, oh i know i know me too. listen <laughs> listen in in short here's the thing here's the thing in okay. Short, okay i'm gonna, I'm gonna right, give you give my, it I, I okay. my unsolicited this isn't gonna ruffle any feathers yeah go ahead i believe that as 
followers of Jesus and, and readers of the Bible that we are actually supposed to abide by the mask policy and wear a mask where it, it, where our government tells us to reason being, and this is really hard because I'm rebellious and this is swallowing a lot of my pride, but yeah. I really do feel that if I walk into a place and the governor of Alabama says, you have to wear a mask. If you go in that place that I, that I should no fussing, no complaining, I should obey and put on mask. So and that's a very unpopular uh, how, I don't, I, I, Yes, it is. But here's, here's like hearing you say that, my first thought is, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, of course. Like any well, Bible-believing Christian for the past 2,000 years would go like, yeah, not But, but here's, here's what like, we did, though. Is we've, <laughs> we've, married, we've married, and I am guilty. I'm saying this completely guilty of this, is that I have married my faith to my constitution, like a constitution of the United States, uh, so like I got, I got a copy of my Bible and I got a copy of the constitution of the United States, both in my back pockets. Right. And so no. like I, I consider both equally as important, you know, like they're both, they both hold the same level of authority over my life and that's false. Like that should not be, 100%. and I'm admitting to that. So, 100%. so even when a nation, so I'm a stranger and a sojourner in the United States of America. Right. So when this nation that I am so blessed to live in creates laws that do seem contradictory to the founding documents, which I believe that there are many, many laws in the United States of America, not just masks, okay? There are many laws that do infringe on the constitutional rights of, of American citizens. But I'm a stranger and a sojourner in this land, and the Bible says that as long as it does not um, uh, force me to disobey my creator, I'm to obey the governing authorities that I'm, I'm living sure. under. Sure, 100%. So, that is a hard and, and, and pill the, for me to swallow, but the I'm just more, say it. Okay, absolutely. Well, like I'll say this last thing on this because I'm so. Gabe, I cannot tell you how I am triggered. I am so <laughs> stinking tired of hearing people's opinions on mask. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard somebody's opinions on this, or email I've gotten, or Facebook messages I've gotten, or conversation oh, yeah. I've gotten at church, I would be a billionaire. <sighs> that being said, here's what I'll say about it, and then I'll shut up. Why is it that our criteria for whether or not we choose to follow a law is, well, I think it's a stupid law, so I'm not going to follow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how is that ever good moral justification for me not well, to follow a law? I don't see the point, so I'm not going to do it. So if okay, try that out with tax laws, right? Yeah. Try that out with any other law. Like if it's asking you to do something that directly contradicts your Christian faith, by all mm-hmm. means, obey God, not man. I see that. It's it's because, like I said, we've married the Constitution of the United States of America to our faith, and that should not be the case. So, so anytime we have this um, this conflict between our personal liberties and personal responsibility and our inalienable rights, and then the government imposing on that, um, then we we automatically we we kind of like, you know. We get all up in arms. So, so I mean, look at look at seatbelts, right? So everybody's okay with wearing seatbelts, yeah. right? But there's a lot of people you know, that hate wearing seatbelts. They say, "Oh, that I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. It cuts into my shoulder. It makes me yeah. feel uncomfortable." I get it, but man, like it's the it's the law. Like, but in, in like paying taxes, like you know, paying taxes, some, someone argue that's not but, that's not but part here's, of the original here's the founding. thing. Yeah, maybe so. But here's the thing: having rights and the Bill of Rights 
it does not mean you can do whatever the heck you want to do. Like, I can't be like, man, I'm going to walk into Golden Corral pantsless. <laughs> Just go over where the nacho cheese fountain is and take a swim. I have the right to do it. Like, no, you don't. You don't have the right to do it. Like, you don't, you can't just do whatever you want. America is a very unique place. Yeah. And, we, we, <laughs> and I, I knew this as this was coming down the pipeline. I was like, you know what? Oh, you see, man. especially in Asia, Asian countries just have a very uh, communal yes. thought process. Okay. So they're, they're all in it together, right? Yep. Americans are uniquely, ruggedly individualistic. Absolutely. And I mean, we're like the guys, like we grab the musket off the wall and we go kill our dinner, right? We're like those, we, I mean, we I are do. descendants I you, of those guys. Yeah. And we're descendants of the Alamo, you guys, right? The, the, the colonists who threw off the British empire. Like the, that's our heritage. If you know, you live in this nation and you identify yourself as part of this nation. So yeah, it's, it's really hard as rugged individualists for, a governor to say you have to put this over your face for the for the well-being of the common good sometimes we don't like right, that right because we think well that doesn't affect me i mean i'm not you know now i, I could like i can so. look at that law and i can objectively i can say okay that law <clears throat> does infringe on my personal liberties and i consider that unconstitutional but wearing that mask does not infringe on my faith 100%. wearing a mask does not make me break one of the commandments 100%. of my creator 100% 100% so therefore even despite the inconsistencies I see in that government, whatever, I, I, I don't, I don't think that that's, you know, in accordance with your founding documents. But my constitution of my faith says I have to obey you, as long as it doesn't go against God's word. I'm going to do that. So Absolutely. that's kind of where I'm at with the whole thing, and it, it's really yeah. hard. And I'm kind of halfway confessing and halfway um, exhorting other people that maybe, maybe yeah. we need to kind of like step back and reexamine this. Maybe we need to detach the Bible from, from our, our libertarian, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. No, 100%. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes to the point of who, who in your life is the decider of your obedience and compliance? Is it your mm -hmm. political viewpoint or is it your spiritual viewpoint? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And I say all that having, um, yet lost my mask virginity. <laughs> You've not worn one? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, and I haven't well. I haven't had to. Okay, so it's I've been like completely to, compliant. Well, like anywhere I go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my thing. Like, I honestly don't, I really don't know if they work. Who knows if they work? People claim, well, you can't stop a mosquito with a chain link fence. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I went to the dentist office today. They clean my teeth. You know what they wear every time they clean my teeth? What? A mask. Yeah. Why do they wear a mask, Gabe? Because they don't need that plaque splashing up in their in their it, mouths. That, and they're probably trying to protect me from their germs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so people are like, mash don't do anything. I'm like, okay, so every time you go to the dentist, which most of the people that say mash don't do anything never go to the dentist, so maybe that's, <laughs> that's really super mean. I'm sorry. Um, As they're slurping down a Mountain Dew. Is, yeah, like, we don't do nothing. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what does do something to your teeth, that Mountain Dew. Um who knows if they do something or not? My point is this, like, man, it's not worth the amount of mental and emotional energy that we expend on these stupid, stinking little face coverings. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going somewhere and they ask you to wear it, wear it or don't shop there. Yeah. If you don't have to wear it and you don't want to wear it, don't wear it. 
and don't judge the people who do. Yeah. It seems like we've lost our mind on this. Like, it's just, it's so simple to me. I don't understand why we made it such a big deal. But anyway, how did we start talking about masks from communism? I don't know. Was oh. that a detour I took us on yeah. or is that one you yeah. took us on? What are we going to talk about in our next episode? I think we're going we're gonna to break this up into two parts, right? We're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, Gabe, I think we've talked about quite a bit of stuff tonight related to uh, Charles Darwin and all the things related to evolution. Do you think we've adequately explained the theory of evolution completely, 100%? No, no. But I, I do want to encourage people <laughs> to go buy... They're very inexpensive on Amazon, The Origin of Species and the Preservation of Favorite Races and The Descent of Man. Read them. Inoculate yourself to the mistruths that are there in them. And then continually, you should always be studying God's Word, the source of all truth, memorizing it. Um, But yeah, go check it out. Read that stuff. Um, Absolutely. And you can find it. Our next episode, we're going to get into. Yeah, because it should be public domain at this point, I would think, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Well, next episode, we're going to get into the book of Genesis and the Bible and what the Bible has to say about our origin. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe maybe we should suggest people go go read their Bible, too. I mean, you told them to read Charles Darwin. I'm going to encourage them to read their Bible because that's how ho- yeah. holy I am. So <laughs> that's that's one pastor to another. So anyway. maybe, maybe next episode I can I can flex on everybody and read a little bit of of uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis in Hebrew. <laughs> well, the thing is, because I don't know Hebrew like you do, you could just be making stuff up and I wouldn't know. So. It could be. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Hope it was a uh, productive conversation. Hope that there were some things that made you think. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, thanks guys for listening. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.